Welcome to Frontline Static, a podcast that helps bridge the gap between work life and home life of healthcare workers, first responders, and military personnel. It's about midweek after Halloween, and we had a really great time last weekend celebrating that holiday, and the kids had fun. They ate lots of candy. Um, I don't know about anybody else out there, but we let our kids eat as much candy as they want until basically they get sick and they're really not interested in it anymore, um, usually come midweek. We're looking forward to the hustle and bustle of the holidays coming up and especially Thanksgiving in just the next couple weeks. This week I had the opportunity to interview Chris Dewey. He shares the route he took via military and some of the struggles he faced along the way to become an aircraft mechanic. I hope you enjoy my interview with him and are able to gain some insight on finding the balance and recognizing when you may need to seek help. So without further ado, here's my interview with Chris. Hey, Chris, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Janessa. How are you doing? Doing good. So tell everyone a little bit about yourself, um, maybe some of your background and what you currently do. Um, So I'm an aircraft mechanic, kind of specialized more on the helicopter side than like a fixed wing plane. Um, I started that out in 2006 by joining the military, and that all kind of happened by accident, Uh, the aviation world. uh, The funny story on that is um, I was so excited to be in the military because I wanted to do that my whole life. Um, I finally went and... Uh, around my right after my 20th birthday and I went to a place called METS military entering entrance and processing center I think is what it stands for I might be wrong on that but um, and I did my test my uh, ASVAB and uh, I wanted to be a vehicle mechanic because I've loved working on cars and I've done that since I was like a kid uh, so I went and I was like, I want to be a vehicle mechanic. And they said, all right. So they started doing the paperwork and then they asked me for my driver's license and I gave it to them and they looked at me and said, Hey, this is expired. You need to have a valid, cal- uh, valid driver's license for us to sign you up for that. And I was like, okay. And they said, if you really want to do that, you can leave and come back after your driver's license and me being excited. I said, no, what else <laughs> can I do? And they said, well, what do you want? What are, what are the things you want to do? And I was like, well, I wouldn't mind being a police officer. So make me a military police officer. And they said, well, you have to have a valid driver's license for that too. And I was like, well, heck. And they said, if you really need to leave, you know, we can always do this later. And I was like, no. So I started naming off like a bunch of different jobs. Um, at this point, like I had started a family when I was 17. Um, so my daughter was born. I'd never really been away from home after that so i wasn't trying to stay away from home a long time and the aviation job started popping up and they were one was uh i think it's a 23 for like bravo or something i don't might be wrong on that but it's a power plant specialist where they work on the engines and i said how long is the school and they said like 24 weeks and i was thinking in my head i was like no that's entirely too long and that doesn't sound that interesting named off a few others and then they got to the job I actually got and it's a Blackhawk mechanic which is a they call it a 15 tango and they told I said what is that and they said you get to work on helicopters but you also get to fly in them and shoot a gun out of the helicopter and I said I don't care how long that school is didn't think I can do that that's what I want 
And that's how I started my aviation career. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did that school take then for you to complete that? Um, I think that was 12 weeks. So um, initially when you get in, um, you go to basic training, which is nine weeks. And then after that is your, they call it AIT, advanced individual training. Other branches call it a tech school. Um, so that was my, my training was, was 12 weeks. It's kind of scary. It's like, here's a 12 week uh, course. And then we're going to let you go fix helicopters. So. <laughs> okay. And what kind of has been your path in the military since then? Are you still a part of it or how long no. have you before? So I did um, initially 12 or six years was my contract. It was a six plus two, six years um, of service and two years of an inactive service. So they can call me back after the two year uh, in that two year period. So that's my initial contract. Um, so when I enlisted, I enlisted in the National Guard. And the reason I picked that was because I had dropped out of high school um, to start my family. So I didn't have a high school diploma at the time either. And the National Guard was offering a program called GED Plus, which they would send you to get your GED prior to going to basic training. So I went and did that and got my GED and came home for a few months and then turned around and went to basic training. And then immediately after that, uh, I went to my AIT. And then my basic training was in Fort Knox, Kentucky. So that was kind of fun. Um, I didn't know that it got cold there. Um, I experienced like negative, like six degrees once that was the first time in my life. And that was wow. horrible. And they made us sleep in it. I went made it even more horrible. <laughs> um, and then after that, I went off to Virginia and, uh, hung out in Virginia for about 12 weeks and then came back home. Um, at that point I didn't really have a job. Uh, so then I tried to push to go active duty at that point because I needed a, a job. You know, I had a family. Uh, my oldest son uh, had been born right before I left to go to basic training. And um, so I had two kids at this time and I needed some sort of income. Uh, so I went to my unit and I said, hey, I'd like to go active duty. Uh, they said, how about we give you a job here full time? And I said, all right. And so I accepted a job as a federal employee or a federal technician, basically doing what active duty does, but getting paid as a federal employee. <clears throat> okay. And how has the military kind of sculpted and changed you, you know, from the time that you turned 20? Um, it's actually been quite a, a roller coaster. Um, honestly, uh, it, it, it obviously matured me a lot more. Um, but I would say that my daughter being born was a, a, a huge like shock to me and matured me a lot then, but I think the military, um, matured me even more, um, and obviously with age, um, and then going on deployments that kind of, uh, changes your life a lot, you know, it's depending on what you do on deployment, but it was definitely, it gives you quite a bit of different outlook on life. Mm-hmm. And you, you're, you're talking about some of these deployments that you went on, like what were some of the things that you did when you were deployed? Um, I've been on two deployments while I was in the military. Uh, first one was to Kuwait. Um, and what I did there, um, I was a maintainer, so I helped uh, fix helicopters, but I was also a crew member on the aircraft. So I got to fly with the aircraft. 
and uh, we were flying with uh, around Kuwait and a little bit up into Iraq. Uh, we would pick up, um, they'd call them VIPs, uh, like generals or high-ranking government officials um, at the Air Force Base in Kuwait, and then we would fly them pretty much anywhere they would want to go. Mm. And then we would take them back, and they would get on their very nice planes and go home. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And uh, you are still currently a mechanic or aircraft, correct? Yes. So after all of the aircrafts that you've kind of worked on in your span of being a mechanic, uh, what are what are your favorite ones either to fly in and your favorite ones to work on? Um, the my favorite obviously is going to be my my original my baby, which is a Blackhawk, because uh, mm. that's just what I enlisted as, and I think it's a pretty sweet aircraft. Um, next would probably be a Chinook, which they call a CH-47. Uh, that's a banana-looking one, the big one. And I like it because it's extremely loud, and everybody likes loud things. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. And as far as, like, your being a mechanic, like, I know as far as, like, the flight crew, we we trust and rely on the mechanics you know, with our life, basically. Um, what what do you see not only as part of your job as not only fixing and maintaining them, but like, how do you apply? I'm sure you think about that and think about the crew members that are going to be going on it, both when you are active duty and now. Um, just tell me your kind of your thoughts on that and how um, you kind of apply that to your work. Um, so I feel that I have a little bit different outlook than the mechanics that I currently work with and that you interact with on a daily. Uh, the reason why I would say that is because I was a crew member. I was what you did. I flew in a helicopter that somebody else had worked on or that I had worked on. So not only, you know, did uh, others' lives depend on the work that I did, but even my own life. And mm -hmm. Uh, you know, being able to know the aircraft and, and follow behind and make sure that the aircraft is actually in a good airworthy condition. And uh, so I think that kind of gives me a different outlook when I do my maintenance now, because I do understand where you guys are coming from. And I understand that there is a huge trust that has to be built there because in, in a way you guys don't really know the aircraft like we do. Mm -hmm. So um you guys just kind of look at the obvious on the outside of the aircraft and you don't know the inner workings of it so you're trusting that we know or the pilots know the inner workings of the aircraft and you're relying that when we say that it's a safe aircraft to jump on and go fly uh in that that's just what it is mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and i think as a crew member it takes time too right like um just now flying in or doing it for so long and flying in so many different airframes. If I fly in a 407 that, or in the 407 that I usually am in, um, and I hear maybe like a cranking that I'm not used to hearing, I think over time now I can say, you know, that doesn't sound right. And I know that that's kind of taken some time to build up as well, but I think you're absolutely right. Like we put a lot of trust into all the entities and to our pilot and to the mechanics and to everyone laying their hands on it. Um, and I know that, you know, I fully do. And I appreciate the work that you guys put into it as well for that. So tell me a little bit about 
you know, I've had some friends whose spouses have been in the military and they've had young children. Like how ha has that kind of affected your family life? You, uh, when you were um, active, you know, being away for such long periods of time? Um, it's kind of hard. Uh, we touched on my first deployment a little bit, uh, not on my second one as much, but the first one, um, it was, it was a little harder because we weren't as busy as I was on my second one. So it's kind of hard to be away from home. And it, at that point you start building a resilience inside of you, I guess you would say to like, mm -hmm. basically kind of block things out and mm -hmm. more so on my second deployment. It was easier to do it because we were working 12 hour shifts and out of that 12 hours, we were flying anywhere between seven to 10 hours a day. Mm -hmm. um, so we were just extremely busy all the time and we'd work six days a week and have one day off. So you were pretty exhausted. Um, but when you, when you tell people that it's like, you kind of put your family and your home life in the back of your mind and just kind of lock it up in a little box and kind of not think about it. Mm -hmm. they kind of look at you weird after that <clears throat> and it's kind of hard to explain some people may understand some people may not but to me I did it because it would make me focus on them if I was thinking about home life and like my kids and stuff like that compared to what I was supposed to be doing and you know the people that were around me and the the lives that depended on my thought process being in the game and, and making sure we were doing what we were needed to do yeah um let's talk about that a little bit more i, I feel the same way and i you know i spent a lot of time previously and i do still at, at to some degree um compartmentalize like my home life and my work life as far as when I'm on the job and I'm running a call. Um, but I do think there's a good balance in that. So um, have you ever, have you always been able to balance that well? Or have there been times that you've kind of faced an obstacle of being able to turn that off once you get home or vice versa, um, turn it off when you get to work? Um, I've struggled with it and I still kind of struggle with it. And I started seeing a therapist about it recently, uh, cause I don't really think much of it. Like my reaction to certain things are not what a normal person's reaction would be to certain events. And so I've gotten a lot of comments from people that I've been in relationships with or just friends mm -hmm. like, Hey, you're not acting normal. And so I started seeing a therapist and talking about some of this stuff. And one of the things that I guess my biggest fear is, um, uh, is that if something were to happen to my kids, like that I should be sad about or angry about or something like that, I, I'm, my biggest concern is I'm not going to react in, a, in the correct manner. Like I'm not going to be sad uh, and I'm not going to address that type of situation the way that a normal person would. And I didn't really think much of it until uh, talking to a, th a therapist at the VA and a few of my friends and saying, hey, maybe you should go get this looked at, might be considered like PTSD. And mm -hmm. so I started talking to a therapist about it and they said, yeah, that's one of those signs because being in the military and doing the things that we did and, and stuff that I saw, um, basically you 
that's where that compartmentalization comes where you just kind of block things out and you just basically are numb to certain situations so you can survive. And, you know, what would you offer as advice to maybe someone who's starting to recognize, you know, what, like you said, that maybe their reactions aren't normal or that they've compartmentalized too much and it's hard for them to open up to their family and their friends. Like, what would you say to those people who are kind of starting, who can relate to some of those things that you're talking about and feeling like that now? Um, I would definitely suggest talking to somebody. Um, and, and like you said, if it's not friends or family, then a doctor or, you know, somebody, because uh, building that up is not is not a good thing. And I, it's created some stress and some different, you know, events in my life that I started recognizing that weren't healthy or weren't good. And it was creating some issues for me. And um, so I started to try to, to work through it myself, but uh, I, I, I don't think that you can completely get through it on your own. I think that you, you're going to need to be able to reach out for help and be able to, I guess, drop that. I'm trying to think of the word. Um, that protect, I guess that self-protection or like, Hey, there's nothing wrong with me type mentality mm-hmm. and be able to accept the help. Cause I know that that's a big issue, uh, especially in the, the, the community of the veterans and stuff mm-hmm. is the lack of communication because of, you know, you shouldn't be affected by the, these things, or you should be macho or so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And I like, you know, having that conversation that's open conversation about um, it's okay to feel emotions and it's okay to you know have that self-doubt about yourself and recognize that you you may be having issues and and lots of people have gone through it before you military not military and just you know having that open conversation again about mental wellness and mental illness and um, really getting it treated Uh, what are what would you say, you know, to maybe some friends or family members that are seeing that in a loved one, what advice would you give to them as far as um, supporting and um, helping, helping that family member out or friend out that they're kind of starting to see those signs of maybe depression or mental illness or uh, PTSD? Definitely. Uh if you're comfortable enough to confront them about it and talk to them maybe like on a personal level and not in front of others um if you're comfortable doing so and and then just kind of keep an eye on it but I wouldn't and and this might be wrong but to me I don't I don't think like trying to force somebody to seek out that help immediately like like if you're like just continually hounding this person it might steer them in the wrong direction or it might build a gap between your relationship with that person but being able to communicate with them or being able to keep an eye on them um if they're not willing to seek out the the proper help for that or you know letting some other people around you know that hey this person you know so and so is having some issues, you know, let's kind of keep an eye on this type of person. Um, I had a situation that um, I didn't know at the time that it 
I think it, it saved this guy's life to a certain extent. Um, it was, uh, and it, it was, it was through a divorce, but it was in the military and he was a mechanic. And I noticed that his quality of work started going down and he was making a lot of mistakes. And, um, I, I kind of got on him at first about it, you know, like, Hey, you know, people's lives depend on this work. So, you know, I was military stopped screwing up. That was mm-hmm. a nice version of what I told them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I continued to notice over, you know, a few weeks that, it wasn't improving and he seemed kind of tired or depressed a lot. So I approached him and I pulled him aside and I said, Hey man, is everything going okay? Um, and he just kind of broke down and told me that he was going through a divorce with his wife and he just wasn't there. And, um, I, I felt the need to, uh, try to help him out and help others. And instead of basically, you know, putting him on blast or uh, making him feel unwanted. I told him that he can talk to me anytime that he needed, but I didn't feel that it was safe for him to be doing the work that he was doing. Mm. And I was going to talk to my boss and which was the maintenance officer and ask if we can move him to the ground support equipment and have him work on, on the GSE equipment where obviously it's still not good for it to break down, but someone's not going to lose their life. And so he said that he was okay with that and he was thankful. And I went and talked to my boss and I, I let him know what was going on. And that move was made and he seemed to be happy and he was able to get through what he was going through at home. And I didn't know this at the time, but I think a year later we were having uh, some mandatory briefings and one of them was about suicide and he stood up and he without saying names or specifics, basically talked about the situation and how it changed his life and it saved him. Mm-hmm. And that kind of hit me pretty hard. Like, I was like, I didn't know that that I wasn't thinking that it was going to save his life as much as I was trying to prevent this, you know, an accident from happening from other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I love that because I think that it's so important to, you know, realize in stressful jobs and just like in stressful situations that you are in and, and high, high, um, high stressful jobs that you do. And I do that people are always going through things. And sometimes their reaction isn't about you. It's about something else that's going on in their lives. So I like, you know, just remembering, like you said, that sometimes the little things that you can do can change the course or the path of someone's life and just being really in tune with them lashing out that it, it might not be about you. It might be something that they're going through. And, what and are, I, oh, go uh, ahead. I was going to say, I think, I think uh, that, that helps out a lot in leadership to be able to recognize that and be able to approach somebody and be able to talk to them and uh, let them know that their feelings are being kind of heard to a certain extent when they're going through things like that. And I, I kind of gave him, you know, props for being able to, you know, not be defensive and actually be like, you know what, I have some, some stuff going on and was able to uh, address it at that point. But I think a lot of that's like in the workplace is, is up to the leadership because obviously people are wanting to keep their job and not say anything. Mm-hmm. So that also becomes a safety issue at work, especially in the, the line of work that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just uh, it's just something to keep an eye out for. Yeah, I mean, how do you do you think that there's um, a stigma about 
in serving in the military, do you think there's a stigma about um, not bringing up, you know, kind of emotions like depression and anxiety or? Um, oh, definitely there is. There's definitely a stigma, and that's something that's talked about a lot in the military, and they've been trying to push on it for at least while I was in for a few years towards the end because of the suicide rate of people mm. going to war because, like, even I wasn't a, a guy running around on the ground or anything, but my second deployment, I was um, kind of working, you know, side by side with, you know, a special forces and the things that we were doing, I was being put into situations that normally a helicopter mechanic won't be put into. So it's mm -hmm. like you're seeing things and doing things that you didn't really think that you would ever really do. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, it's like, it, it, it kind of messes with you. And then you don't really want to, you know, say a whole lot because, you know, like in my thing, it's like, okay, well, I'm just a helicopter mechanic and i'm supposed to be a manly man right and then mm -hmm. you know i think about like the other guy that's an infantry guy running around on the ground mm -hmm. and how he might see or do more so he should be the one that should be able to report but the suicide rate was going up and and it's just uh i, I think that it's a huge topic in the military currently Mm -hmm. And like, what uh, resources have they kind of put in place, do you think, um, to help people with that portion of it? Um, they've actually come up with a, a good amount of resources. Uh, the government, uh, like to the VA, or there's a, a, I don't know if they're government related. I know there's military one source that you can contact. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uh, like veterans groups on the side that like are, are pushing this now and like, hey, if you got, you know, you're having issues, you know, say, say something, do something, you know, like don't just sit there and let it fester to the point where you end up taking your own life. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a big topic now, uh, especially among veterans. And it was, it was a pretty big topic especially on the withdrawal from Afghanistan and how that affected a lot of people yeah and I think it's important to point out too that sometimes those things aren't triggered right away right like sometimes it can be years until someone starts to feel the effects of the magnitude of the things that they've seen and the things they've they've done yeah um and that goes back to the compartmentalization of things so like you put that in a box and stick in the back of your head and you don't think about it mm -hmm. you know there's a you know there, there's some few things that i can remember right off the bat that like like it was fresh like it happened yesterday and there's a few stories that were pretty serious that like i kind of forget about sometimes and like every once in a while, just for some reason, just pop in my head, like I'll be driving to work and I'll, I'm like, oh man, I forgot about that. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, remember like the first pediatric code I, I had and it, it wasn't even that it was the first pediatric code, but the girl was like the age of my daughter at home. And I didn't put two and two together until I saw her at home and I just broke down. She was her age. She had the exact same toenail polish on that my daughter had. And I didn't, it didn't hit me until I got home and I saw my daughter. And I was like, you know, some of those things that we see sometimes just don't hit us at the moment, you know? Yeah, so like I, I would have a story similar to that, I guess. The thing that uh, that sticks out to me, one of the stories that sticks out the most, and it, and it might be a little weird to some people, but um, 
it, it, it was towards the end of our deployment on my second one. And uh, there was a, a unit from Texas that just got there and they were there for a few weeks. And um, it was, uh, we got a call basically saying that there's a couple of soldiers down that they needed to transport their bodies from a base to the airport to um, basically send home. And I wasn't a part of that. But the following day, we found out that one of the soldiers that had been killed the day prior, his wife was deployed mm. and at that same base. Mm. And so I was, on, I was on that aircraft that day that we went and picked her up and all of his and her belongings because she was now going home. Mm. And we basically had to carry her to the helicopter because she was so distraught, crying and like just couldn't walk. And they found, I found out that they had kids and is just the fact that like just seeing her face and her reaction to, you know, what had happened that she just lost her husband and the father of her kids. It was just, but that right there was like a, a kick in the gut like, that, that bothered me instantaneously. Yeah. And that's a memory that like, I'm never going to forget. I'm never going to forget what her face looked like. Yeah. And and that hit home because to me, that's that's the aftermath of what goes on in war. But you don't ever see it when you're deployed. You don't see the spouse or the family immediately after that happens. Mm -hmm. And this occasion that happened and, you know, like I've, you know, moved, you know, deceased uh, soldiers and um, Iraqis and stuff like that and that didn't bother me as much as it, it bothered me seeing the reaction of that wife yeah yeah same for me I the most horrible part was getting to the hospital and seeing the parents there um, and hearing them you know that that was that I'll never forget that as well so as far as like you know coming home um, what are some of the things that you've done um, after deployments to uh, kind of have mental, you talked about going to therapy, but having just um, a better mental health for yourself? Um, I think um, more so after my second deployment. So my, my deployments are back to back for the most part. My first one um, I was in Kuwait. I came home for three months and then I turned around and I went back. Um, and then I went into Iraq this time and stayed in Iraq the whole time. But my second deployment was, I guess you would say more of a, a war compared to my first one, you know, seeing like death and destruction and somebody actually trying to kill you daily. Mm. And, and with that, it just, it changes your mentality and your outlook on life. And I remember coming home and I didn't think that I was different. And uh, my wife at the time had told me that you, you're different. You seem different. And like, I didn't feel different. I didn't think I was different, but mm -hmm. I just, I think over time I started to realize the fact that like, I, I want to live a different life based on the fact that you know, every day deployed, like it could have been my last day and it kind of changes your mindset on how you look at, at things and how you live your life. It's like, it, it's a fresh set of eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And how, how do you think that's like affected your relationships with people 
Um, positively and negatively. Um, positively because I, I try to live my life to the fullest. And I also try to like withdraw from like a lot of negativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, negatively would be the fact that I don't show a lot of emotion, mm. um, in a lot of situations. Mm. Yeah. And, um, I think you just recognizing that kind of is the first start. I mean, why, why do you, why do you feel like you don't, you're not able to show emotions? Um, I think there's a multitude of, uh, of reasons my life prior to the military and how I grew up and then also um, continuing that into my adulthood going through the military uh, kind of, you know, only made it, I think, worse. Mm-hmm. Okay. What would you say to, um, what kind of advice would you offer to someone who um, might be struggling with some of the things that you've been talking about. You mentioned you do therapy, but what are, what's some advice that, that you would offer to someone who is starting to kind of feel and recognize some of the things that you're recognizing or that you've recognized about yourself in the past? Um, as for my relationship, I share this information with my partner, um, just so they have an understanding of where I am and who I am. Um, I've shared some of the stories so they they kind of understand like to a certain extent like why I am the way that I am um, and then the other thing that I do um, as a hobby at home I have I, I love working with my hands and I like I said before I've been working on cars since I was little uh, I've been taking things apart putting things back together it's just what I do I love creating things with metal I like welding fabricating um, I like projects, you know, like that, um, like currently right now I have a boat that I'm rebuilding. So being able to get out and, and get into the garage and use my hands, um, and just kind of zone out from the world and just create something, uh, kind of, it just, it's a great feeling inside, but it also, you know, lets my mind just go, if that makes yeah. sense. And, and yeah. sometimes that happens at work. Like I get into that, that zone of just like relaxed and, and just cruising along and I'm feeling good and I'm, you know, working on my hands and, and it just, it just, I guess you kind of say what a Zen or something, you know, um, and it's not all the time at work, but it, it does happen. Like when things are peaceful and quiet and I'm by myself just doing things. Yeah. And I think you touched on something that's really important, you know, when you're working a high stress job or you have a lot of stress in your life to really um, make time for hobbies and do things that are important to you. Um, I think as parents, that's hard for us to do because we, we do our work and then we come home and we parent kids and we realize there's not much time left for ourselves, but I do think that's important, you know, to keep your hobbies and things that are meaningful to you and um, express yourself in that way to really um, de-stress and decompress. Yeah, being a parent and having this job is kind of, you know, difficult sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, especially with like the hours and stuff like that. It's, it's like sometimes like, for example, last night I ended up or yesterday I ended up working 14 hours, mm-hmm. which is the max amount that we can work, but I wasn't able to pick up my son or drop him off from school. And 
you know, we kind of talked about this before we started recording. Uh, my daughter's old enough to drive, so I'm thankful that she was able to take him and pick him up. But in a way, I start to feel guilty because mm. I should be there for him. I should be able to do do those things. Mm. But to me, yesterday, like it, it's, it was kind of like, do I stop what I'm doing and, you know, uh, let the aircraft stay out of service overnight? Or do I continue what I'm doing and, you know, have the aircraft in service? Or, you know, it's kind of a, a mix of like, of emotions of being able to do what we do uh, compared to, you know, being there for your family. And that that's mm-hmm. kind of a hard trade-off. And I, I know some people that I currently work with that struggle with that dramatically is, is trying to separate the two. And you, I, I guess you have to have an internal boundary when it comes to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that it's that that part's really hard, um, especially with the on call and stuff that you do. Um, I think that I experience a lot of parent guilt too and mom guilt too. But I also think it's important for our kids to see how dedicated we are with our job, and your kids must understand that too. And you know, although in the moment they might be a little heartbroken that we miss a game or we miss a holiday that they really want us to be there for it. I think it, they, they understand and they see how committed we are to the work that we do. And I think that's going to um, just show later on for them. Yeah. And I'm going to uh, kind of go back a little bit and then come back to the current time. Like we're talking about deployments. Like my youngest son was born right before I went on my um first deployment and he was born in December and I left in April basically I left on uh Easter Sunday Mm -hmm. and so he didn't really know me and I was gone from April to about December time frame and and a lot happens with a baby between those times and when I came home for two weeks he didn't know who I was like like I would hold him and he would cry the funny thing is is we went to lunch as soon as I got home and I gave him a strawberry and we seemed to be best friends after that. So the strawberry was the trick with him. <laughs> <laughs> but like uh, being they didn't understand at that time. They know that their dads, you know, in the military and away from home and stuff like that. Miss birthdays, miss holidays. And that's kind of hard on you as well. You know, that's something you have to compartmentalize and just kind of store away. And you just tell yourself it's just another day. It's just another day. But to everybody else around you, to include your family, it's not. And like, that's another thing too. You come home and mentality is just it's another day. It's just another day, mm-hmm. right? And you're just living your life and everyone's like trying to be excited and happy for a holiday, you know, like Halloween and stuff. It's just like, it's, it's just another day. You know, you, you've gotten yourself into that mentality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but even like currently, like we jump fast forward to like yesterday, um, I was I already kind of touched on was, you know, my my mindset was, you know, the aircraft is out of service and it's going to be out of service all night. But my mindset with that was if I I would rather try to fix this and, and get this aircraft back in service so that you guys can do your job to go save lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, I felt that I could do that my kids are old enough now to understand that and they see how hard I work and I want them to see that I want to see hard work gets you places I want to see them 
uh, have them see that I'm that I love what I do and I'm dedicated to that and hard work does pay off. Yeah, it's definitely a balancing act, like you said, you know, between um, working really hard and you said kind of knowing what the balance is with that. And how do you think that um, how you are now and being able to balance things and reflecting back on, you know, after you had your second child, your son, um, what kind of things have you learned over the way, over that time period um, um, that's I compelled you to be now, how you can I handle don't, it? I don't think that it really hit a lot after deployment. More is when I was at home and the, the job at home became really demanding and I was taking it home and I was thinking about it 24-7 and stressing then I finally realized, you know, this is, this is just too much. I need, I need to, to get away from this. And that's kind of how I ended up getting out of the military was just that was mm-hmm. a, a lot of stress was being put on me. I, I moved up into leadership positions and it just, it created a lot of stress for me. And I just finally said, you know, enough is enough. Like I, I was, you know, trying to figure out what like there was days where I would be driving to work and I'm like, is this what my life is? What, what is my purpose in life? Mm. You know, like, why am I here? And mm-hmm. I had those thoughts a lot and mm-hmm. it, it was kind of scary too, at the same time, having those thoughts, it's like, okay, is this, you know, I'm, you know, 28, 29, 30. It's like, okay, like, what is my purpose? What am I doing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you felt like kind of at the time getting out of the military was the best thing for you. Yeah, I think it honestly, it, it turned out to be the best thing. And I mentioned before that I wanted to be in law enforcement. And the reason why I wanted to be in law enforcement was because I've always wanted to help people and try to give back to the community in a way. And um, I, I feel that this job that I have now touches on that and my passion of being a mechanic so I get to be able to do both Mm -hmm. I know that I'm not a a front line showing up to the scene of the accident but I provide the the vehicle for you guys to do that and that's my way of giving back and it was kind of interesting Um, one of the guys that I was in the military with uh, a while ago had posted something on his Facebook about his brother being an accident and you know prayers this that and the other and um without getting into too much detail um i was working in fresno at the time and i got called to visalia um because they needed me to take the aircraft apart because of you know the the decontamination process right Mm -hmm. and so that evening I, i was like well that's kind of funny um that you know those two tight because he was talking about his brother getting an accident at a certain time and I, I i saw i shot him a text message to say hey is your brother in an accident you know here and here and he was like yeah and i was like well, that's kind of crazy and like the aircraft that i work on and the crews that i that i work with they went and got your brother and, and took him to the hospital and he was extremely grateful and very appreciative and happy because he said that we saved his brother's life and to me that's why I do what I do and why I push like yesterday working the 14 hours because of that right there I don't get to meet all these people that you guys you know save lives for but 
this one particular incident, like it was somebody that I knew and that I knew it was his brother and that that kind of hit home, you know, a little closer to home for me. And it felt amazing. It gave me a great feeling. Yeah, I, I think that's really important to mention. And there's a lot of um, different people that go into the job that we do, right? Like you said, we have mechanics, we have dispatch, we have everybody, um, law enforcement, fire, everybody who works together with us um, and maybe isn't that person that everybody sees. But um, I know I appreciate everything that you guys do. And I have full trust with everybody that I work with, um, you know, that when I step in the aircraft that it's, they say it's good, it's, it's good for me. And I, I have no 100% no doubts about any of that. So um, I really appreciate everything that you, that you continue to do. One well, last question you. for you, Chris. Okay. Uh, what advice would you give someone who is wanting to be an aircraft mechanic? Um, honestly, as a going through the civilian aspect of it, I couldn't tell you much about it, honestly. Because um, the, the route that I took was through the military, and I, I think that it was a great route. I don't regret any of the, the experiences that I had in the military. I think it made me who I am. Mm -hmm. um so that's that's also a route to take um it's a good route um but as for the civilian world you would have to go through you know two years of, of school and getting your airframe and power plant license as like the pilot has a license through the faa uh, we have a license through the faa and our license gives us the ability to work on pretty much anything that flies in the air that falls under the FAA regulations, which is kind of cool, but, you know, that's a lot of different things to work on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's, if it's something that you desire and you want to do, um, I would say pursue it in whatever path that you would want to take it, um, military or through civilian school. Um, I would recommend making sure that that's a passion of yours. And like we've already touched on, you know, maintenance and, and the, the, you know, the fact that if you do something wrong, it could be, you know, you know, people's lives at risk at that point. It's not working on, you know, your car in your driveway at home. Mm -hmm. This is something that you can't pull over on the side of the road. So with that being said, that, that mentality and your, your type of maintenance that you're performing has to be on point. And people do make mistakes. Um, I've made mistakes and, and I'm gonna continue to make mistakes. We're human. The goal is to try to make as little mistakes as possible and nothing you know, to the point where it's major where it's gonna take somebody's life. Yeah. And so that's something to think about. It's not just, hey, let's go to school, become an aircraft mechanic and then you know, it's like working on a car. I think the mentality is completely different, you know, when it comes down to it. Um, but like, as for the physical aspect, a, a nut is a nut, a bolt is a bolt. They're all the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate, you know, everything, like I said, that you continue to do. And I really appreciate you sharing your story um, with me and, and um, with the podcast viewers and um, is there any last like 
motto or anything that's kind of helped you in hard times um, or any belief that you've had uh, that you could give as advice to maybe someone who's kind of going through some similar um, experiences that you've been through in the past? Um, I would say definitely reach out to anybody that you trust uh, if you're having, you know, issues or just to talk to somebody. Um, and if you believe in, you know, a religion that, that there's nothing wrong with that, like, I, I'm not exactly set on one religion or the other. But I do believe that there is a higher power of some kind. And I do believe things happen for a reason. Um, and um, I, I like to look at a lot of life quotes. Uh, that helps me through a lot of things. And one of the the, the people I like to listen to uh, or their quotes um, would be Denzel Washington. If you haven't looked up any of his stuff, mm. he, I, I think he's a, I, honestly, I think he's an amazing man. He's got a lot of amazing things that he says. So that's just kind of like, I, I see a lot of his quotes and there's, you know, quite a bit to, to choose from. And um I just kind of look at his stuff, I guess. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, no, that's great advice. Well, thanks, Chris, again, for everything. And I, I really appreciate all that you do. No, same to you. Thank you. All right. If you're ready to make a change today or have a better work-life balance, you can find me at Janessa Dean Coaching on Instagram. Link is in the bio for a free consult.